Well, for those of you that have been saved for a couple days, a couple weeks, or a couple months, I'm going to tell you to turn on your devices or in your Bibles to a book that's got a really unique name. Okay? All right? Our theme for the year is Looking and Living, so we're going to talk about now how to live. We've talked about looking for the return of our Savior. And every day we're to be comforting one another with the words of his, the promise of his imminent return, right? Jesus is coming again. Amen. That wasn't a very hearty amen. amen. Maybe today. Wouldn't you love to see him today? Uh, that anticipation compels us by God's grace to grow in Christ's likeness together. We've looked at that. Now we're going to be talking about living life on purpose. We're going to be studying for quite some time uh, the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So if you'll turn in your Bibles there to the book of Ecclesiastes. We have a Bible to follow along, uh, available for you. If you maybe forgot yours in your car or whatnot, uh, if you could just lift up your hand, our ushers will make sure that um, you have one to follow along. Keep your hands up high. You need it. Living life on purpose. And, and really, I, I believe that, that this book is about exactly that. Where do we find purpose in life? Some of you that have known the Lord for a really, really, really long time have found this book quite complicated to even read, let alone understand. And I understand that. So you would say, Pastor Tim, how are we going to take a book that's really full of meat and not milk, things that are harder and not easier, and, and why in the world would you take a book like this and preach it through on a Sunday morning uh, to try to help uh, even young ones in the Lord try to understand it? Uh, because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for instruction. Uh, it's important for us to preach through the whole counsel of God's Word. For those of you who are newer in Christ, that just means every part of the Bible. And our desire is to help you know how to live and to please God. I think if you wanted to write down in the margin of your Bible, right before chapter 1 of the book of Ecclesiastes, you can write down 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 and 2. It's always the believer's desire to know how to walk and to please God, to, to know how to live in a way that mirrors his character. We looked at Titus chapter 2, verses 11, 12, 13. I think those are good texts to write down here. Those are texts about knowing how to live in an ungodly and unrighteous world. Paul instructs Timothy along the same lines in his second letter. We want to know Christ, we want to know his word so that we know how to live. How do we live? Life's complicated, isn't it? Life has a lot of twists and turns, doesn't it? Many of us have faced those twists and turns with our own health. Many of us have faced those twists and turns with our vocations, our jobs, what we do for a living. Anyone here ever been pink-slipped without notice at work? Raise your hands. Look around. Does that set you back in your seat a little bit? 
How many of you have ever had someone, when you were out on vacation, just enjoying God's creation with friends or family member, uh, get seriously injured on a trip, a vacation? Anybody? Ten, Ten or so hands. There's a lot of life that the book of Ecclesiastes talks about that we're supposed to enjoy. We're supposed to enjoy our vocation. But there's twists and turns. There's good times and there's bad times. In our work lives, we're supposed to enjoy pleasure like vacations and so forth. But even in those times, there's ups and there's downs. And they may be way up and they may be way down, but always twists and turns. We're supposed to enjoy family. You say, how in the world do I enjoy family? I've only had a remnant of a family in my home. I wish I had a complete family like my friends have. I wish I would have had a mom and a dad. I wish I would have had brothers or sisters. I wish there would not have been divorce in my home. You might be able to say, I'm glad there was divorce in my home. My dad needed to go, or my mom needed to go. It was crazy. Uh, life is full of craziness. And it seems, it seems to us as human beings so ridiculously random sometimes, doesn't it? Like out of the blue, where did that, how, what? you got to be kidding me. Whether it be work, pleasure, family, there's nothing new under the sun. God causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine upon both the righteous and the unrighteous. And because of the effects of sin on this old world that God's created, there's always going to be ups and there's always going to be downs. And many times, oftentimes, we won't be able to compute in our own hearts and minds the why that anything happened. But we know that God, in his grand sovereign scheme of things, has a very infinite, intricate network of answers to our questions why. Although he may never give us those, because we probably couldn't handle the answer regardless. I remember when, and I've told you the story before, when uh, my wife's mom, Rhonda's mom, was killed by that drunk driver on the way to her college graduation. What's the first question you ask? Why? you got to be kidding me. She was, what, 50? We were commenting this May 4th, which was just the anniversary of her accident back in 1989, that we are, in, or this birthday, we're now actually older than your mom was when she passed away. But I can remember being told that by one of the leaders in the dorm at the school that I was going to, and I just fell to my knees. I said, why? What in the world? She, she loves you, Lord. She's walking with you. She serves you. She's coming to her daughter's graduation from college to celebrate this grand occasion. We're leaving from there to go celebrate a week at Disney World, right? We're just starting life. We're going to be getting engaged. We're going to be getting married. You, you wouldn't let this great lady see her wedding? What? Why? 
This makes no what? Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, humble yourselves under God's mighty what? Hand. That mighty, sovereign hand which governs all the twists and turns of life and realize that he's still good, though we may not be able to comprehend. And my friends, we'll prove from this book that is actually a gift to you of God's grace, of you not being able to know why. Just trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I didn't tell Frankie that I would do that. Frankie, can I embarrass you for a minute? No? Okay, we'll move on. Oh, you're good, okay. <laughs> Whew, all right. So we're still going to meet for discipleship right after I tell this story. But it was a great story we had, discipleship together Friday. We uh, met the Mexican restaurant over here in 615, and Frankie blessed my heart, like big time Friday. You had no idea how encouraged I was from hanging out with you then. So Frankie's the guy that played football with my son from Mentor High School. And, and uh, Frankie's a phenomenal athlete. You watch him play. He's one of the best defensive linemen I've ever seen. Right? First play, first game of, the, of his junior year, right? God takes out, God allows his knee to be taken out, right? He loses his junior season, has reconstructive surgery. Right at the end of getting to the good part of our rehab to get ready for next season, an infection invades his knee, right? We don't know all the details, but he may have been allergic to the stitches they used to stitch his meniscus, right? So that infection melts his meniscus, infects his knee. They've got to go in there, undo the repair, clean out his knee, and he's, he's on antibiotics for how long, Frankie? Six weeks, he's on IV antibiotics in his home, walking around. He's missing school. Right? Can't go to school like that. Right? He uh, can't have the next reconstructive surgery until the infection's completely out of his body. And they just found a little remnant of it someplace else in his body. So they got to clean that out. And, and, you know, here's a junior in high school going through something that really has turned his life upside down. Right? Why? Even before he comes to know Christ. What are you doing, God? What, what's up with this, right? Got college football dreams ahead. He can't get it reconstructed until after every, you know, morsel of infection has gone from his body, and then he's going to miss his whole senior season now. Right? But when we were sitting there at the beginning of lunch on Friday, I just said, and how are you doing? What, what are some things that, that God's shown you just to, just to show that you're, you're certainly you know, born again, Frankie, that you've gotten saved? Just give me two or three. And we try to start that way a little bit every time. And uh, he said, you know, Mr. Potter, he said, really, somehow I should not be okay with all that's happening to me, but I'm okay. Amen. I trust God. Amen. I trust God. Now, even in that trust, that's not a blind trust, is it? 
That's a trust that's been graced to him, gifted to him by his Savior. Only saved people can truly trust like that. I know it's cliche in our world to hear the phrase, well, you know, all things are for a purpose. You're even people that don't know Jesus say that all the time. All things happen for a reason. And I want to find out what that reason is. And my goodness, if unsaved people can do that, certainly believers can say, you know what? Yeah. I may not understand it. I may not get it. But God's got it. I'm going to trust in him. Well, I continue to do good things. Another verse I'd like for you to put at the beginning of the first chapter of Ecclesiastes is 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. This is a verse that I sign every guest book at a funeral viewing. It's a book on suffering. 1 Peter is a book on suffering. Suffering according to the will of God, because sometimes suffering is the will of God to, to grow us into Christ's likeness, among many other things. But what does Peter exhort us to do? Entrust yourselves to a faithful creator while you continue to do good things. Memorize it, own it. That's not the only place to go. That is the place to go. As you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, right? 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. And while you wait for him to exalt you in his time, entrust yourselves to him, who is a faithful creator. And that word faithful and how it describes our creator in that text is, is an infinite, comprehensive reliable creator. God makes no mistakes. He's trustworthy. So entrust yourself to him. And this is really how you know you're trusting God. If you're going to continue to do good things. Someone who's going to trust God, whether it be Frankie or Rhonda, and I could go around and tell hundreds of stories of unexpected tragedies in your lives that I'm familiar with. How did you continue to go on? Well, because you've been born again and you've owned that God is faithful. And you may not understand why. And how many times do we say that? I don't know why. I know God has a purpose. I know God has a plan. So I am going to continue to go do good things. Okay. So why go through this very complex, difficult book? Because I really believe it's got a, quite a simple message that I believe anyone at any spiritual age can understand. It's about how to live life on purpose because God is faithful, regardless of how sin has affected this world. And he's graced you with the ability, because he is faithful, to live faithfully regardless of circumstances in your life that you just could never wrap your mind around. Okay? So this is really intended to be a book of great comfort, a book of great peace, you're going to see often used throughout this book words by the writer, the author of this book. Vanity is vanity. All is vanity, says the preacher, says the teacher. 
Is he saying that life's a waste of time because I can't understand it? It's not what he's saying. At first glance, as you read through it, you might conclude that that's exactly what he's saying, and it's actually the antithesis, it's the opposite of what he's saying. He's just basically saying life's short. Life is saturated with complications and hardships because the effects of sin generally on this earth and the effects, and he's speaking for himself, his own sin that he's created, that he's performed on this earth, and, and living through the consequences of both, God's still good. Life's short. Don't get caught up in the whys. Don't get caught up in the hows. Don't get caught up in the what ifs. Don't get caught up in any doubt. We'll always be tempted to get caught up in those things. But what he's saying is life is short. Trust God. Right? Many things that you do in life will seem useless. But they're never purposeless. They're never without purpose. In God's grand, comprehensive, infinite scheme of things for you. For you. They say the number one cause for divorce per capita in our country now is when parents lose a child in death. There's people in this room this morning that have experienced that. Those who have had miscarriages, that little one's with the Lord. There are some that have given birth that have, baby's been stillborn, and I've held that baby with you, and we've wept together. There's some of you that have lost children in their adolescence, and some have even lost the child in their adulthood. I don't think the grief is any more or less at any particular time. Losing a child before you go is a great guttural grief to any soul. I don't understand. I don't understand. You've been a tremendous testimony to me, or God's grace through you, should I say, to see how you've been able to, as hard as it was, to entrust yourself to a faithful creator while you continue to do good things. There's an author that I read that describes the usefulness of this book uh, this way, and I hope his description is comforting to your heart and helpful. He says, The message of Ecclesiastes had its origin in the one great shepherd, the Lord God himself who graciously revealed his upright, true words to the preacher for man's good. This book declares the philosophy of life, the, the worldview that ought to govern the life of every believer and attract every sinner to the Lord. Unless man, whether saint or sinner, understands and implements this message, the real meaning and purpose of life will remain a mystery with frustration and despair ruling. 
To seek satisfaction and contentment in the things of life is to look in the wrong place. The message of Ecclesiastes constantly points to the eternal God who can only satisfy man and requires that the stuff of time be evaluated and used in light of the certain reality of eternity. How we view the Lord determines how we view life. I'll say that again. How we view the Lord determines how we view life. How we view life is a mirror of how we view the Lord. Recognizing and submitting to the Lord God is essential to a biblical philosophy of life. So who's the author of the book of Ecclesiastes? If you look at chapter 1 and verse 1, I think we find a majority of that answer. The words of the preacher... And here's the first way the author describes himself, the son of David. That's critical. And he's king in Jerusalem. And that's almost equally critical. Now, David had sons. The only son to have authored scripture, especially of the genre of Ecclesiastes, Old Testament poetry, if you will would be Solomon. And why would we say that this might be Solomon as well? Because Israel's not divided yet. And Solomon was king over a united kingdom. He's the son of David. He is king of Israel, king of Jerusalem. And he's defined here as the preacher. Seven times in these chapters, he defines himself as a preacher. Now, uh, the way the hearer would have first read this and understood it, this would have been a teacher, a teacher of wisdom. This would be a third basic reason why we would hold that Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. He is really, uh, the Bible tells us, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the smartest guy to ever live, right? The wisest man ever. And how do we know that? If you want to cross-reference there, 1 Kings chapter 3 and the story of how the Lord came to him and asked him what he would like from the Lord. And, and of all the things that Solomon could have asked for, he asked for wisdom and the Lord gave it to him. And it would be a great study for you to look at how the Lord immediately blessed that request in Solomon's life. In 1 Kings chapter 3, he did bless him with godly people around him. He blessed him, number two, in chapter 3, with, in 1 Kings chapter 3, with resources to get the work of the Lord done. And then thirdly, he gave him his first opportunity to demonstrate that wisdom. For those of you that have known the Lord a long time, remember the two moms that came with one baby? One mom fell asleep on her baby, and the baby died. She suffocated accidentally her child. And so they both bring a baby. You know the story. That's not the topic of our message this morning, but he gave him an opportunity to immediately practice the answer to prayer that God had given him. So you ask for wisdom, 
He gives you godly people around you. He gives you the resources to get God's will done. And he gives you the opportunity to continue to do good things and trust yourself to a faithful creator while you continue to be faithful doing good things. He's the teacher. He's the teacher of wisdom. He's the wisest. Most of the book of Proverbs has been written by his hand under the influence of God. And for all of you kids out there, 18 and under, if you haven't done this in your lifetime, I encourage you to do it. Take the book of Proverbs and read one chapter a day for a month. And do that for like six straight months. It'll change your life. It'll change your life. That's... All that wisdom is a direct answer to prayer of Solomon to his creator. Make me wise. And he made him the wisest. And you certainly want to go there, kids, if you want to know how to live. So he's the son of David. He's king in Jerusalem. He's the wise preacher. As a matter of fact, really, the word preacher, every time you see it, you see it here three times in chapter 1, verse 1. Verse 2, verse 12, you see it in chapter 7 and verse 27. Um, Behold, I have discovered this, says the preacher. And you see it three more times in the final chapter of the book, seven times total. Uh, Chapter 12 and verse 8 and chapter 12 and verse 9 and 10. He's the wise teacher. And he's got some pretty wise conclusions about this old life. That seems kind of confusing at times. And he's wise not just because he's been gifted of God to be wise. Life has taught him some lessons that the wisdom of God has taught him how to compute those lessons that life's taught him. He's a guy that's lived well for part of his life and a big chunk of his life. He messed up. Like he royally messed up. Is anyone royally messed up in their life? Come on, you all liars, raise your hand. Right? (laughs) Right? Has anyone had some really good spiritual times in your life where you felt close to God? I would say all of us would be able to say we felt really close to God and we've had times we felt like we royally messed up. And we all would probably be able to say if we're walking with God, we can take the Bible and kind of share wisdom from the Scripture about how to maintenance our walk with God when times are good and how to climb our way back to Him after we've messed up, right? Well, the wisest man that ever lived is sharing, really, end-of-life information. Looking back over the shoulder of his own life, he's, he's saying, yeah, There's one thing and one thing only you need to remember. (laughs) In the grand scheme of everything, is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And that's how he concludes the book. Go with me to chapter 3, if you would, as we wrap up this morning. We're going to study together four particular 
characteristics of God next week. Four particular characteristics of God that are mentioned throughout this book that are going to help us make sense of this book. Because remember, to live life without a view of God is foolish. To have a view of God that doesn't help you how to live life is equally foolish. So we have to understand God if we're going to understand how to navigate through the twists and turns of life. Okay. I really believe the theme verse of the whole book is chapter 3 and verse 11. I know the conclusion of all of life we've already mentioned in chapter 12. But the theme verse of the whole book is chapter 3 and verse 11. He, God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. That's each person he's ever created. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. You don't know it all. You'll never know it all. You don't want to know it all. But God knows all. And he set eternity in your heart this morning. What does that mean? Everyone under the sound of God's word this morning knows. They know because you've been created in God's image. Regardless of what your brain's been taught and convinced your heart to believe. Every one of you knows that when you breathe your last on this earth. When you physically die, the story's not over. God has written eternity in your heart. This ultimately is why many people fear death. Because when they breathe their last on this earth, they're scared to death to draw their next breath in eternity. We're going to learn from Solomon's words here that that is not, that kind of fear is not the fear that God intends anyone that he's created to live with. He does not want you to have that fear. He's created you. He's created you with this understanding that this temporal, physical life is short-term and eternity's long-term. Are you prepared for eternity? My friends, religion cannot answer that question. Because in the realm of religion, you're going to find a Baskin-Robbins, if you will, of ways that people are trying to crawl back to or to please God. And God's made it much more simple than that. Fear is taken away when we know Christ who is peace. Christ who is the giver of eternal life. Life may never make complete sense to you, but it makes a lot more common sense to us when we know Him who is peace, who is God's divine counselor for our soul, who's given us a resource in the Word of God to go to as a roadmap to life, to teach us how to trust and to teach us how to live. It's all found in Jesus. It's not found in a religion. It's not found in a religious leader. It's not found in a church. It's not found in each other. It's found in Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. Go with me to the last chapter of this book and we'll find out, while well, we've looked at the human author, who is the ultimate author of this book of poetic wisdom. 
Verse 11, the words of the wise men are like goads. Chapter 12 and verse 11, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. These words might be tough to hear. They may not be easy to understand. But they're given to us by our shepherd. This word shepherd, as you follow this out in the Hebrew language, you'll find out that this word for shepherd was understood in the Israelites' mind as being a synonym for the name Jehovah. Jehovah is where we get our English word, or what we get our English word Jehovah from Yahweh. God is the great I am. He is the eternal God. He is the God who is self-defined, self-existent. He's always faithful to who he is and what he's decreed. And he's immutable. He can never change. He's the God who keeps his promises to his people. He's the shepherd who gives his wisdom to the wisest, Solomon, who tells us that sometimes that wisdom might be hard to hear and difficult to understand, but understand the shepherd's got this. It's going to be okay. What you need to do is to live faithfully. And the only way you can live faithfully is by knowing the faithful one, God's son, Jesus. So today, please know him. You may have lived a life of knowing a lot about him. You may have grown up in a religion that taught you a lot of things about Jesus. But there's a big difference, my friends, between knowing him intellectually and owning him in your heart spiritually. Have you ever turned from yourself and your own intellectual knowledge of him and surrendered your heart to him? That's when peace that surpasses all human comprehension comes in. That's where you really know how to live life with common sense. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord, we need your help. Anytime we approach your word, the Bible, we need the help of the Spirit of God to illuminate and make the significant, make its truth significant to us. So as we are children of God, help us to understand the Word of God, particular to this text, which has been so often maligned and misunderstood. Help us to understand its overall simplicity and truth as we walk through it. Lord, I know that you'll help us who own your son to do that. And my heart this morning, Lord, goes out to those who may be here who may know a lot about Jesus but have never turned their lives over to him. I pray, Lord, for these folks that they would know in time how to live with joy and faithfulness because they know Him who is joy 
and faithfulness. With our heads bowed, I would just briefly communicate to all those who are here. There's an an emptiness in your life, a void in your life. It's made life ridiculously confusing to try to figure out. It's been hard. It's been difficult. You've been trying to answer the questions all your life of who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? What's the purpose in my life? And all I want you to do, my friends, is just understand that the shepherd, Jesus Christ himself, has the answers to all those questions. But you've got to start with him. Trust in him. And my friends, this morning, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I would just encourage you to, in the, in the quietness of this moment, just open up your hearts to him and say, hey, I... Thank you, Lord, for drawing me here today. Thank you, Lord, for speaking into my life the difference between right and wrong. Thank you, Lord, for creating me in your image to help me know the difference. And thank you for all the good things that you've given to me, whether it be friends or acquaintances that have been sharing Jesus with me or living Jesus in front of me. And you may even be sitting next to them today. And just thank you, Lord, for these sweet friends and And Lord, I I pray that sometime, maybe today, that I'll know you rather than just know about you. And if your heart's ready, my friends, right now, you can just say, Lord Jesus, it was my sin that put you on the cross. I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. I turn from my sin. And Lord Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. I want you to fill this void in my life that has seemed unfillable. Lord Jesus, save me. Come into my heart today, right now. I invite you in and I make you Lord of my life. Today I realize what I've always wondered for certain, that no church, no religious leader, no human being, can offer me what you offer me. You offer me forgiveness from everything that is sin and my sin. Please be my Savior. If you prayed that this morning, the Bible says that God heard you. He's not deaf. If you prayed that this morning, and you meant it, should be some great degree of relief in your soul. An aha moment, if you will. Like, wow, this is so great, but yet it was so simple. That's the way God intended it. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I wish that you'd maybe find me on the way out and tell me. Or maybe you can whisper in the ear of someone who brought you or that you know here. And just today, I came to know Jesus. That's it. And then we'd love to help you grow through knowing his word to become more like him. Okay? Father in heaven, thank you again for your mercy and your grace demonstrated so many ways, but particularly through your son, the Lord Jesus. We're amazed by your grace through him. 
not only to save us, but to sustain us through this life that's so full of twists and turns, to teach us the best spiritual common sense is to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator and to continue to do good things. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.